0: I would not have somebody do heavy lifting on a BOSU ball. That's too far for me. Don't need to do some of my stuff before the lift, Mm -hmm. do it after. And then, you know, your lift is going to be better and you're going to build on what you gained from that lifting. So heavyweight stuff definitely has to be on a stable surface. But if you do my stuff, Um, you'll be able to lift more weight because you, I don't think that on an, uh, without an unstable surface, you can really get all parts of your being integrated.
1: Hmm.
0: That's been, that's my experience.
2: That was Dr. Edith Hoyce. And you're listening to the just fly performance podcast. (laughs) Today's show is brought to you by Lost Empire Herbs. You can get 15% off my favorite herbs for well-being and athletic performance by heading to lostempireherbs.com slash fly. About three years ago, I got into herbalism after having Logan Christopher on the podcast. Starting with the Phoenix formula, which literally had my body buzzing after I took it. Not in a jittery way like coffee, but in a way where I really felt the herbs working with my body. Within two weeks, I was already noticeably stronger in the weight room. And ever since, I've made herbalism a regular part of my training regimen. I've totally ditched any sort of caffeine-laden pre-workout. And I really enjoy using supplements that come directly from the earth. Lost Empire Herbs was started by Logan Christopher and his two brothers to help bring back the lost empire of nature and our connection to it and to bring the power of herbs to the general public. Again, if you want to see my favorite herbs such as shilajit, which has been mentioned by other podcast guests on this show, Phoenix Formula, and more, as well as get 15% off your purchase alongside a 365-day money-back guarantee, head to lostempireherbs.com slash justfly. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. Today, our guest is Dr. Edith Hoyce. And this is a show that is uh, near and dear to my heart in the sense of I enjoy speaking on training, uh, facets of training that tend to, um, I guess you could say, like, elicit a visceral response in people. Uh, such as uh, balance training. I think in the strength and conditioning community, it's oftentimes uh, our balance training is just associated with some frivolous um, entertainment or circus act oriented work, but at which it can be, I mean, easily, there's a million ways that you could do quote unquote balance training in a way that really isn't accomplished anything other than maybe fulfilling some uh, element of novelty. and And like, let's see if I can do this on the part of the athlete. But um, truly what the things that make up an athlete are so multifaceted. We do have, yes, force production ability, but there's so much more to it. And in looking at athletes in the track or swimming worlds, for example, which I've had the blessing to spend quite a bit of time in both of those areas of athletics, is you'll often see where an athlete is training really hard, doing a lot of very output oriented movements in, in their regular training regime. They get injured, they go to rehab, they then go internal and they start utilizing a lot more internal oriented movements, a lot of balance type work. They come back and within weeks to months, I've seen it many times where these athletes are then setting personal bests. And you would have to ask yourself in that situation, well, if that athlete didn't get hurt, what would have happened? Would they still set the PR? And although you can't say with hundred percent certainty, I would say from my point of view that they needed to have that injury they needed to go internal and then we can take that knowledge of that internal of the other mechanisms the softer side if you will and we can blend it into everyday training in either cycles or within the session itself it's important stuff it's important to take an honest look at um, some of the training that i think that we might write off in light of just pure output driven work and so uh, with that said i'm really excited to have our guest today dr edith Hoyce. Dr. Edith is a nationally known chiropractor. Because she is the founder of Revolution in Motion, or Rev in Mo, and she is the co-author of the book ProBod X, or Proper Body Exercise, which many people who are familiar with Marv Marinovich, Dr. Edith was a co-author of that book, which I bought back in the uh, early, early 2000s. Dr. Edith's methods have created great success with the athletes she works with, uh, which include many professional and Olympic athletic individuals. For the show today, Dr. Edith will speak on balance and proprioceptive training methods such as pipes and slant boards and how we can utilize these in our training regimes. She'll speak on advanced foot training concepts as well as information on the fascia and the fascial system and how it responds to various training methods. This was a really eye-opening show. It goes into topics and a viewpoint that you don't often get in the typical output-driven Uh, Arena of athletic performance. And so there's a lot of really valuable concepts in here that wherever you are on the athlete, coach, um, youth athlete to pro or elite spectrum, there's something in here for you. Finally, before we get started, you may want to check out the show notes for this episode on justflysports.com on the webpage where you'll see some examples of the exercises Dr. Edith is talking about, such as the pipes and slant board work. And you'll also, there on the show notes, have a chance to win a free three pack of virtual classes with Dr. Edith. So head to the show notes to check that out. That said, let's get on to episode 284 with Dr. Edith Boyce. Dr. Edith, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here today.
0: Thank you. I'm so happy to be able to speak with you and to meet you.
2: Yeah. And let's kick things off. I don't often ask this question, but I would love to hear this or hear you tell me a little bit more about it is, Uh, Tell me about your story in terms of how you got to perhaps a more untraditional, if you will, form of exercise and the way that you teach exercise and movement.
0: Well, I came to professional training um, a little bit by accident, um, but it was an amazing path. So I went to chiropractic school because I specifically wanted to study kinesiology Uh, I was never interested in conventional chiropractic. Um, I don't, I was never of the belief that if you corrected the spine, everything would fall into line because I knew about, I always had an appreciation for movement. So I knew that something else was moving those bones. So um, I went specifically to specialize in kinesiology and to get a real uh, strong neurological background. So, I ended up with a practice in New York City of very challenging neurological cases because this was 1982. I started my practice, and medicine didn't have a lot to offer MS, muscular dystrophy, and other neurological conditions. So, these are patients that were looking for help in whatever way they could. So, I had a lot of very challenging cases show up you know, in my office and was amazed at the improvements that I could get. I mean, it seemed to me like muscular um, MS was like a very easy thing to treat and help people recover from. And so I had to learn about the nervous system because of the demand. But there are a couple of uh, key things that I noticed right away in practice was that the quality of a person's life was directly related to the health of their feet. So I became like really good with the feet and I wanted to know how to treat them. I wanted to understand the feet. Um, And there were other, the other thing was that within my first year of practice, I started to develop corrective exercises because I'm not one of the of practitioners that you just lie on the table and that's it, you know, and I do it for you. I see what I do, whether it's treatment or training, because I don't separate those as a collaborative team effort. And I'm only as good as my patients or my clients. So right away, I was looking for exercise modalities that patients could do between their treatment so that they wouldn't slide backwards or they would continue to advance on the changes that we made because everything is about moving forward. And I, I mean, yeah, I was in New York. I did Feldenkrais, Alexander, Pilates, all kinds of movement and dance techniques, like very... Involved in sophisticated things as well as weight training, you know, bodybuilding. And I just couldn't find a a modality that worked that was comprehensive enough. So the closest thing for a lot of patient care was Pilates, but um, I took Pilates myself and all I could do is poke holes in it. Like, that's not really the way the body works, you know, and I could get into some of the things that I saw in a different way, you know, if, if we want to, but um, then I moved to Southern California and had an opportunity to work With a strength and conditioning coach that taught me about eccentric, isokinetic, plyometrics, and I just saw how that fit into you know a health modality. But I had all this information from seeing people go from illness to wellness, and I saw these patterns evolve. And I was always interested because I was working with some Olympic athletes and things that would athletes that would come to New York City, and I was like this has to improve performance. If it's improving the nervous system and the organization in the body, imagine what it can do for performance. And I was so fortunate because one of my patients in Southern California was a training decathlete and he introduced me to Steve Finley, who is a, one of the top Padres baseball players. And from there, I I just kept getting these elite athletes that had these remarkable, you know, bodies that were just designed like prototypes. And I got to see that everything that I saw in the human body going from illness to wellness could be applied to performance things like the importance of the feet, the importance of instability, um, what I really saw made up the core, um, you know, sequencing. I mean, that really, I mean, I just have a whole list of things that um, I recognized were important. And the, the problem was that no one was doing this kind of training. So I would try and Google like, Okay, so are people seeing this happening you know and and I'm seeing this connection of the lower abs to the spinal lengthening, and even stuff like eccentric, like what I was seeing with eccentric loading for um optimizing not just performance but wellness, you know a lot of that information didn't start coming out until about ten years ago, you know, so there was a lot of information that I was seeing observations I was making clinically that I was applying that were working phenomenally, but we didn't have an explanation for exactly why they worked. So that's why I keep studying neurology, you know fascia, you know everything I can to try and explain why what I see works so well.
2: you're yeah. Part of your journey that's really interesting to me—it's almost the opposite of I think many strength coaches. And I'll just speak for me personally: as I, I look at what you were doing—you were—you were doing um, like Feldenkrais, Alexander, like things that I would say are soft, soft versions of exercise, internal versions of exercise. And then you met a strength coach that taught you more of—I would say—more the hard side, the more output-driven elements. And I, I think that well, I know it for me personally, and a lot of people, it's the reverse. It's a lot of strength coaches start in outputs. It's, it's, you know, weightlifting and outputs and how much did you lift or how fast did you lift it, X, Y, Z and all these um, numerical output driven things. And then a lot of times I'll see this in athletes, like an athlete will train that way or with that emphasis and then get injured and then have to go to, you know, go to rehab and then everything becomes internalized and they start working the other side of it and then they come back and they get a little rest from the outputs and they'll set a personal best. They'll set personal records. And, But you were you were the opposite. You started with the soft and then went to the the more output side. So um what were some of the things that were really um like you mentioned Feldenkrais, Alexander, in talking to you, it seems like you really um understand like like the slow. I I know it, it felt with Feldenkrais too, like going slow to then go fast. What were some of the things, the core principles you really got out of those softer sides that stuck with you when you did eventually utilize that with training athletes or or anybody?
0: So um, let's just take Feldenkrais and Alexander technique. I mean, the deliberateness and the attention to slow, precise movement uh, was really interesting, but I have to say that it doesn't, it's, it was a little boring.
1: Mm-hmm. I can know? see that.
0: <laughs> and I knew there was a way of accessing that small, refined movement in a dynamic way. And that's why I came up with, you know, what kept my interest. Uh, So that's where instability came in because we were getting, you have to use all those tiny movements in a very um, organized fashion and you get immediate feedback. On your results. You don't get immediate feedback. I mean, with Alexander, you do, but you are also very dependent upon a teacher to take you through those kinesthetic movements, which is fantastic, but it has limitations. And I also think that I always knew that I could get it done more quickly and more efficiently than that, and sort of more engaging multiple parts of the body. So that's why I train the way that I do. It's not without an incredible amount of observation, perception, trial, and error. I've always studied movement. You know, like, I mean, I didn't realize this until five years ago that I've been studying movement since I was like four or five years old. And I remember trying to get my brother to cross his eyes and move his eyes independently. And (laughs) I realized that a lot of things that interested me about the nervous system was probably me trying to fix a broken brain,
1: Hmm.
0: you know, because we all come into the world with, you know, some limitations potentially, like maybe we were bottle fed instead of breastfed. So immediately started having you know, potential brain injury, if we had allergies to dairy. So, I mean, I can dive deep into that, but I won't. Um, But those are all the sort of things that I consider when I'm working with somebody. I want to explore why are we not getting the response from the nervous system or the fascia uh, that is possible. So, we always see that there's way more potential then people actually realize they have, and that's really exciting
2: yeah i'll definitely I have this list of questions, and I hope maybe as we go through them i'll I'll circle back on some of those neurological elements that can cause movement dysfunction, because I know sometimes and especially now i I used to be very like i my full time work was in the college sector for over for twelve years before I got in the private sector here recently, at least on a full time basis and i I notice, like some athletes, young athletes I work with are such. I mean, they work hard and they're awesome, and, and I love training them. But like, they're such poor movers. Like, there's, and you think, I think to myself, this has to be more than just the sports they play because they have played sports that you know, like they, they've grown up playing sports. Like, what else has happened to the point where this is? They have this like style of movement now, and so I think, yeah, like you're saying, like maybe there's there's some other things that have happened along the way that have neurologically impeded them from being. A a good able to express their full abilities.
0: A hundred percent. I've always said that we really lose some of our best athletes with the kind of training that they do. And I would get some teenage or um athletes that would want to would come in and get um treatment. And they're like, Oh, you know what, this is gonna be he's gonna be the next best shortstop. And I'm like, you know what, come visit me when you're 17. Because a lot of times if they don't make it to the time that they're 17, I mean, it's so critical, then, you know, you can have, you know, what seem like fabulous natural athletes and it's all trained out of them pretty much by the age of 17.
2: Yeah. So with some of these critical abilities I, and and kind of looking at, I almost look at the like the balance ball and and that kind of work is if you had all the way on the the left is just pure feldenkrais just super slow and all the way on the right is just like i don't know maximal sprinting and like heavy lifting and those kind of things and it it, it's definitely in 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 the middle and maybe a little bit more towards the left uh but so often the strength and conditioning community here is like balance and they immediately just think oh well it's that's like surfing or that's not usable because your foot isn't solid on the ground or you can't express maximal force against a barbell or something like that. And there's these mental, I think, barriers that people have with, with quote unquote balance. <laughs> could you go deeper into, and I, and I, you, you answered it already a little bit. You were saying how like balance gives you a feedback mechanism. That's not just, if you didn't have that, then the feedback's just, well, did I lift the weight or didn't I, did I run the time I wanted to, or didn't I like there's, so could you explain a little bit more about how how to use balance in restoring like the neurological effectiveness of the body and helping athletes to become better.
0: Great. Right. So, um, balance isn't for me just standing on unstable surfaces. Um, my training involves instability, which I feel I know is a critical part of training. But there's a lot more. To it, but if we just stick with the importance of balance and why training unstable is important, um, it is a form of novelty, and the brain thrives on novelty. So when we challenge the body balance-wise, but also I challenge them texturally. You know the texture that you're on. We get feedback. Our nervous system our fascia all gets feedback from whatever surface we're on and when you take away that feedback you dampen the brain's engagement and so if we say right away stability so gosh the the brain is so interesting and i i keep studying it but there's so much to to learn um there are colleagues that I have that are really brain experts that I pick their brains to try and get some answers. But instability just simply, I'll start, makes the cerebellum work. The cerebellum is a part of the brain on the back of the skull, two lobes, and actually it has expanded over time with our evolution. So it seems to be getting more and more important. And you'll understand why, as, as I tell you just a little bit more about it. Um, So the cerebellum is a relay place. So it gets information from the body and that includes the fascia, the muscles, the joints, the vestibular system. So it's, it's perceiving what's going on. It's interpreting the information and then sending it to the brain. So as it, takes the information in from the body, it's refining it before it sends it to the brain. Then the brain takes the information and makes a decision. It goes back to the cerebellum, which edits it again, and then sends it back to the body. So I don't I mean, do I have to say any more about the importance of balance training In how we move, the efficiency. So, I can put somebody on the flat side of a BOSU ball and I use it diagnostically. So, balance challenges help me tell, identify what somebody has to do to improve their overall performance, their overall being. But, um, so just to go back to the cerebellum so, the better the cerebellum is working, and we can train the cerebellum with instability, with piano playing. We can do all these cerebellar exercises that upgrades it. So that's immediately going to translate into our performance, our sports, or any action that we do. So another thing is that there are scientists believe that the brain actually evolved for control of action and movement rather than cognition so there's this cute little story about sea squirts because sea squirts in their life the early part of their um life cycle they swim around and then they find a place to anchor they anchor and they eat their own brain and nervous system because they don't need it anymore (laughs) Isn't that cool? I mean to just think about the importance of the brain and the nervous system when it comes to movement. so I do everything to refine the perception of our outer and our inner environments to be able to respond as precisely as we can and you know, to any stimulus, you know, and the thing is that we've got internal stuff going on all the time that time that affects our performance. Like, you know, if you've got your gut motility too high when you're ready to do a sport, that's a distraction that your brain is going to be thinking about that. And your cerebellum is going to be saying, okay, what's going on? What what's happening with the vagus nerve. So it's going to distract you from optimally performing. So we can train you. That's where balance comes in so that your inner and outer environment better communicate with one another. And that just immediately uh, improves performance. Um, so the other thing is, so we all know how important like the mind is in sport and things like that, but uh The cerebellum is really tied in with everything that we do. So if you think about balance, physical balance, upgrading the the cerebellum, what about balance in all parts of our life, decision-making, you know, um, choices? You know, like just to give you an idea, like if you drink too much alcohol, What happens? Your movement's terrible. You make bad decisions. You really don't have good judgment. So that's an example of when everything goes wrong. You know, so if you're upgrading your cerebellum, you are also helping you automatically improve your focus, your sense of well-being, your mood. I mean, you're a better athlete. Not only are you better at your sport, you're enjoying it more, you're less prone to injury, and you're better equipped for recovery. That's just the brain part, a little snapshot of the importance of balance, why you want to train balance um, as it applies to the brain.
1: (laughs)
2: I wanted to take a quick break from the show to tell you a little bit about our sponsor, SimplyFaster.com. SimplyFaster.com is a fantastic coaching resource, not only on the level of their blog and all the information they put out, but also on the level of their online store. With the click of a button, you can see and purchase the technology that is utilized by so many of the world's great coaches. In SimplyFaster.com's online store, you can have access to training technology such as blood flow restriction training, timing systems, including the free lap timing system bar speed tracking devices, a variety of resistance training machines, such as the K-Box, and also Kaiser training units, which Kaiser training units being strongly recommended by sprint coach Randy Huntington, for example. You'll also get access to motorized sprint training units, such as the 1080 sprint, force plates, and much more. You can check that all out by heading to simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Let's get back to the show. Yeah, I when I was at um, Rafe Kelly's uh, retreat this past summer called Return to the Source, one of the things that I learned and I asked a lot of other attendees there was um, some ideas based on the work of John Riveki and the uh-huh. idea of like embodiment. And so like the idea of we, and it was, made me think about this. You talk about the brain almost being like being designed for movement. And like, we, it's almost like I move, therefore I am like, we find our, our, our meaning in the ability to move. And so as you were saying that, I was thinking about: Do you feel like, um, is that like a global thing? For example, could balance training or or even just novel training or things that activate the cerebellum in movement also have a positive impact on other things the cerebellum would be used for? Like, um, are you you were saying like piano playing, like is it like a global thing? Like like all mental thing. processes?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: That's
0: 100%. cool. One hundred percent. I mean, what, it's so cool when you know a few mechanisms that respond to movement that can change your life. Fascia is another one, you know? Um, so,
2: Yeah. I, I love to, um, I lo- I'm excited to get into that because I hear fascia and fascial training talked about it a lot. I talk about it a lot and I'm really interested to get your perspective on it. I want to kind of close out a little bit on the, the balance point though, first, because I, this is an interesting thing to me. I will say like, I, Uh, Like I bought the Probot X book, 38. So 17, 18 years ago. (laughs) It's been actually I I lent it to another trainer at the gym I was working at when I was 21, and never got it back. And then I bought it again like five years ago. And I never, I never really went in on the balance elements of it till it was um, a high jumper, uh, Amy Acuff, who, uh, yeah, uh, she had said she loved the PVC pipes. Like they made her feet feel alive and. I was like, all right, I'm going to give it a shot. I'll, I'll, I'll cut out the pipes and I'll, I'll do it. And I remember that really was helpful. Like, I just remember that like being the first, cause I think I would always see balance training before and just think, oh, it's just, it's just novelty. Like it's just, you know, there's, it's not in the ground. And I would see a lot of like swimmers that I I didn't work with, but they, I saw them doing balancing stuff. And I think I from what I draw drew, it was just they they wanted to have fun. They wanted to keep challenging themselves. They wanted to do something that was more than just lifting a heavier weight. So they wanted to balance. And anyways, after that though, and then and then eventually getting like the circular discs and those things, I was like, and seeing the impact that made on my feet and just the the total reaction on the way up, I'm like, yeah, there's a lot to this. And I I really enjoyed this kind of training. Um so outside of the novelty element, I mean, obviously it is novel. And I think there's a lot of ways we could get novelty in a, in a gym setting, but just outside of the novelty, could you tell me a little bit about just like the feedback loops, like the, or how you would progress balance training? Do you progress to more unstable or less unstable with more force over time? You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm just curious to get more into the nuances of how you prescribe balance work for either a, like a general pop, like really Maybe a low level, maybe you said like more on the illness of illness to wellness versus uh, and then maybe an at like an athlete, someone who's more capable in those those types of things.
0: So um let's see, about four years ago, a very high-level athlete. He skis all the time all over the world. Um he came into my studio. He was referred by Jamie wheel, who is, um, the flow genome project. And, uh, I put him through, you know, a workout and he was as many athletes are, you know, shocked, humiliated, embarrassed, which I try not to do. It's all self-directed. Um, and he realized how far he had to go as an athlete and and even though skiing is very unstable, you know he goes fast, change of terrain um he still wasn't well organized enough to you know balance and he is um the one of the presidents of a senior living company. So it's called Meridian Senior Living. And he said, how would you like, do you think you could design a program for seniors? And I thought, that's not my, I didn't think that was like going to be my wheelhouse, you know? And and I thought, you know what, I'm creeping up there. You know, I, you know, yeah, let me think about it. So in about like, Thirty minutes. I'm like, yeah, I can do this. And then I figured out a program with a you know a bunch of sequences. And we did a test um, program. Now I had them do it all seated sitting. So they had you know the inflatable cushions on chairs that had arms on it. Their feet were on pipes on discs. I had them doing many versions of my exercises and. I thought, well, you know, it's probably going to take a lot longer. I was blown away. Like, first of all, they would kind of doze off. They didn't, you know, then they were wide awake. They were looking forward to this every day. Their walker heights had to be increased. So you can do it sitting. But but the interesting thing is that one of the components that I think is critical in training is a perception of risk. And here we are, they're sitting on cushions with arms, but you roll off that um, disc a little bit. And there's a moment where you're like, you know, I'm going to fall out. And then you realize that you're not. You can correct yourself. And the improvements were dramatic in not much longer, actually, less time than some top athletes that are were overtrained in their sport. Um, so that's a kind of in, instability factor. Now, I don't just do instability for you know, and ex- just to do instability. There is a strategy behind it, which is what's not working that disrupts their ability to be on this unstable surface. And I'm, I do things like a lot of head position, eye movement, so that I'm tuning the relationship of the eyes to the inner ear, to the head position, all things that are critical in sport. If your head position's not right, you're not going to succeed at anything, you know, as well as, as you could. So, um, I, as far as, you know, like I I would not have somebody do heavy lifting on a BOSU ball. That's too far for me. Don't need to do some of my stuff before the lift, Mm -hmm. do it after. And then, you know, your lift is going to be better and you're going to build on what you gained from that lifting. So heavyweight stuff Definitely has to be on a stable surface, but if you do my stuff, um, you'll be able to lift more weight because you, I don't think that on an, uh, without an unstable surface, you can really get all parts of your being integrated. Mm. That's been, that's my experience or it takes a, I, I just don't think it can be done. Because I see the people that that haven't done it and I see the problems with not having it part of their training program both for performance um, rehab and longevity and and I would say that if the the most important thing for me in sports performance is longevity mm. because we build you know the, the uh, our knowledge, our our experience creates, you know, wisdom. That then that information can be taught and trickled down to younger players. And I think that we m- miss a lot by making by making our athletes just a commodity.
2: Yeah, I I definitely agree with the longevity. I think it's very easy to take athletes and throw him in a weightlifting program that increases his intensity very quickly. And you'll oftentimes, okay, well, your 20 meter dash got a little faster. Your vertical, your standing vertical jump got better. We're on the right track, but after a few years, where do you go from that for one? And then two, like we've in that course of time, likely the all the balance systems and really attacking that proprioception and that that's impact on the cerebellum is oftentimes ignored. Um, I it's funny you mentioned the the distinction. I think it's a, like like a not trying to like stand on pvc pipes and squat a bunch of weight or the discs and because I think we live in a culture that's so all or nothing like we just like to polarize everything. And it's like you know it's almost like oh you're in a balance training well that's probably you know all you do and I, and like for me personally what I do with my clients and where I've evolved to in the last 4 years is I'll start if I'm doing a strength day, I'll start out with the discs. Like I always start with the discs, do a bunch of stuff, work to single leg on the discs, and then I'll start my squat sets on with the squat bar with my feet on the ground or a slant board or something, you know. So it's and that's just what feels good. Like that's where I've I've gone to. And and Leah, like you said, it's it it can make everything better. I think we just like to think it's just one or the other. And if it doesn't fit with our paradigm of just pure outputs, we will ignore it. I'm glad you also said that the outputs, the lifting does on a flat surface can, I like how you put that, like it can engage the fullness of our being. <laughs> I think like the, the, the science term would be just motor outputs, you know, but like, I like the way that you put it. It's a very holistic kind of vibe to that.
0: Yeah. I, I don't use a strength. I might mean, if you bring up a term or, a, um, I may have to ask you to explain it because I don't speak strength conditioning language, you know? So Thanks for, <laughs> you can bail me out.
2: Yeah. What, um it's, I'm sorry to be the, like, I don't know if I call it myself the, the simple police with this or like that. I know when reporters do this, it's just, it it can be very, I don't know, like I, the, the answer is oftentimes more complex, but I'll ask this is what, from a balanced perspective with some of the basic tools you use, what should athletes be able to do? Like someone who you see, like. If they can't do some of these things, there's an issue. Like, what are some basic balance things athletes should be able to do?
0: Okay, so I think I would like to phrase that a little differently. Sure. So if I put somebody on the flat side of the BOSU ball, standing on one foot, if I don't see that they're able to engage their lower abs, lift their torso, lengthen their neck and relax their back. And if I'm seeing that their alignment is inadequate and that there's too much tension, um, then they need, that's what we have to target. So it's less about making it more unstable or doing more things until we get to the point where All of what I term the revolution of motion and essentials, I had to figure out a way that I could explain what I was seeing, teach what I was seeing, so that my exercises could be used in the right way. So the essentials became a tool to better use all of my sequences and my system. Uh, I don't want technicians because we all have the capacity to observe and keep refining our observations so that we can help the people that we're working with as well as become better known ourselves inside and out and help our athletes become the, you know, the best version of them themselves. So, um, you know, but, but to get things like rotational movement on a BOSU ball while you're tossing a ball, those are things athletes should be able to nail with, with ease. Um, I, they, they should be able to do complex movements when their feet are on the BOSU ball and they're laying on a ball. So there are certain things that I look for and I'll use different tools depending upon what is resistant to integrating into the whole system. Does that make sense?
2: I think so. Um, So basically if someone's like, doing, um, like a core exercise on a BOSU ball or you're throwing, uh, maybe I'll take it back to the, um, like the single leg standing on the hard side of the BOSU ball. I, I just, I find that, uh, that's a pretty simple place to start is if an athlete like can't do that, then you're trying to break down, well, what part of you do I need to go? Like what now, where do I need to go? Like if an athlete like couldn't elongate their spine and ribs. And with all that too, I, I will say before I forget, I think it's interesting how Um, Something I've become more attuned to through the the last several years of this podcast and some of the people um, who've been on have been students of um, Bill Hartman is a physical therapist who talks a lot about compression and expansion and these two opposing forces and strength and conditioning is so compressive by nature. Pretty much everything that is done is either compressing an individual and compression itself not being a bad thing. It's just when it's out of balance. But when everything we do is just compression. or A a drill that's designed to aid a compressive stimulus, like we're going to do a squat warm up and it's all designed to compress you. I find it very refreshing and balancing in in the sense that you are the everything you mentioned with that standing on a boaster ball is expand, it's expansive, it's like it's the opposite, it's the balance. And I just think we don't think about that enough. And it is also nuanced too. I think so oftentimes we want, well, just give me these, this drill, how long should you be able to do it for? But we need to learn to look at things too. like it is. This is a skill. Like, I think we should have pride that we honed our eyes and our ability to observe athletes. And it took us years to get there. You know what I'm saying? Versus, yeah, yeah. oh, I just read a textbook and I just have to do this many sets and reps for this long and we're good. Like, no, like this is a skill, you, the skill of observation. And I, I just think that's a really cool thing. Sorry. I was going a little bit off track from, um, like going into what an athlete can't do with it, but I just, I appreciate that about that even that whole concept of things.
0: Can I, I just want to throw some things in. I I think about, you know, I work with some biomechanics, people are hitting, you know, coaches or throwing coaches. And, um, there was a comment that this biomechanics guy said, um, he's like, you know, I really got, you know, these athletes, your athletes, you know, to really like, it doesn't take much to get them, you know, to follow the cues or whatever directions. And he hadn't like really registered that it had anything to do with the way that I train athletes. Mm. But the whole thing is that we want to automate as much as possible so that there's not much thinking involved so that when you do have a skill that you actually have to learn, you've got more bandwidth for that skill. Yes. And yeah, so that you're not using all your bandwidth to like, What's my, you know, I have to step up to the plate or, you know, where's my footing for my sport? So I love that they just get better at their skill, you know, and my whole thing is let's automate everything that we can. There's Our body is designed for automation, you know, to work as a unit. And then like, like I just remember, always thinking about the flow state. Cause like I was, you know, 16 and, and skiing and man, that was my first experience of getting into flow. And it's like the rest of my life was about trying to capture that, you know? And so I always thought, you know what, there's gotta be a way of training flow. Cause it shouldn't just be like the exclusive domain of, you know, high level athletes or, you know, jazz musicians or whatever. It's like that should be accessible to everyone. And I, when I was working with Steve Finley, you know, we, we were doing an interview and he's like, yeah, I call this my in the flow training. And I'm like, wow, that is the nicest thing anybody ever said, because that was like a lifelong, you know. Goal of mine to make that accessible because it's almost like a spiritual experience. So, anyway, all of the training that I do, when you get things, you know, that dialed in and automated, you're that close to the flow state that you get to just drop off into that flow state because you're riding the edge. Mm-hmm. You know, like, why wouldn't you want to give that gift to everybody? Why wouldn't we all want access to that? So, that's I don't know how I got on we got on that subject <laughs> anyway okay. so much for that deviation
2: no I I, I like I'm that I, I think about that a lot I mean it it fits with in this world that we have the way that we have the sport industry right now we have people who are special like specialized as a strength coach and it's like so oftentimes, the thought process is, well, this is my job. So I'm going to teach all these skills of lifting to all these athletes whose sport is not weightlifting. Or, you know, and then, and like you said, it's like, well, now we're taking up all this mental bandwidth to coach all these people up in these lifts. And I mean, again, we need to do things safely. Like we don't want people getting hurt. But on the flip side, if like my career, if I feel like in a really important part of my career is getting someone to nail all the little nuances of an Olympic lift and you're a baseball or a basketball player, like it, I, I think about that and again. I, I do think I am definitely one who wants to do things well. Like if I'm going to do something, I want to do it well. And so when I have been coaching athletes in that department, I, I don't. I try not to burden with details, but I do feel compelled. It's almost like the nature of what you do to like to want to help someone with that. But I also, I, I, as I've gone along, I realized well, if I could just have athletes do things that, like you said, are automated. Like anything, anything with a balance disc, I feel like is very largely automated because there's only like really one way, the body's going to kind of find the one way that's the best way to do that. And it's not a conscious, like I'm thinking one plus one equals two. It's like more of a subconscious kind of, I'm I'm letting my body figure this out. And, but that's how we learned everything as kids. I mean, I look at how I even learned to do like uh, as a high jumper and everything I did in track was largely self-learning. And every time a coach told me to do something else, it it only just decreased my performance. And that's just largely a function of some of the, the ways the coaches were teaching me. I mean, there's lots of other ways, but anyways, I always will, will go for the, I will prioritize the self-learning, the automated in response to what you're saying that. And I think that that doesn't mean that I'm a bad coach. It just means I've gotten a little more wise in my selection process and, and helping athletes to use more of the internal workings rather than having to consciously like slug their way through their training.
0: Right. You know, I want to add something, though, that the automation can't happen if you've got obstructions. And that could be things like densification in the fascia or neurological, um, you know, injuries and that, you know, or any injury that could create a dysfunction in the organization to be able to access and use the automation. So that's why I really look like, are they able to use their feet? What's happening with the relationship between the lower abs, the ability to relax the back? The, the lower abs, when they're engaged, should automatically cause the torso to lift. The low back to relax, the head to drift up, the shoulders to fall into place. That doesn't happen if you're overtrained, if you do one sport so much that you've created, I mean, I, I refer to it as, you know, densifications. Those are the things that get in the way of performance over time. That's why an athlete can't come back sometimes from, you know, an injury because you could sprain an ankle and it could go all the way up to your hips or to your neck and change your eyesight. So you'll never see the ball the same way. So, you know, people go for rehab, which I I really, it drives me Crazy Because I would, you know, an athlete would say, I'm going to start working to you after I do my rehab from injury. And it's like, no, they have to go on simultaneously. And then unfortunately, too much rehab is segmental. It's just focused on the area of the injury or right above. The fascia is sequential. It moves all the way up the body. So You can really be missing some very obvious problems and dysfunction because you're not looking at the body as a whole and you're not looking at history, injury history. You know, so when I put somebody on an unstable surface, you know, just flat side of the bosu bowl, looking at things, I'll say, When did you get whiplash? Have you had any concussions? You know, what happened here? So all of our injuries and our dysfunctions are imprinted in our physical body, but we can change it.
2: Blood work is a common analysis in the regime of elite athletes. It quantifies many dimensions and metrics of an athlete's physiology and helps one to see windows of potential performance improvement. Today's episode is also sponsored by Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker was founded in 2009 by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics. The company uses a blood test and patented algorithm to analyze your body's physiological markers, providing you with a clear picture of what's going on inside of you. Inside Tracker then offers science backed recommendations for positive diet and lifestyle changes. In using Inside Tracker myself, it was truly fascinating to see the many metrics of my own physiology. Looking at things like hormone levels, inflammation, blood oxygen related metrics, and much more. If you are interested in an inside tracker analysis, for a limited time, you can get 25% off the entire inside tracker store. And to get that discount, head to insidetracker.com just fly sports. So, when an athlete or any individual is on an unstable surface, there's less, the way I see it, versus if your foot is on solid ground, you have less room to compensate. Like, I feel like as per what you're saying, like your compensations are going to come out more readily because like your foot can't plant down or nothing, things can't clamp down as readily. And so would you say that's the case? Like if I'm in an unbalanced situation, it's almost easier to see a compensation strategy, uh, some, an insufficiency somewhere versus if someone could use the ground and try to manage their way through it.
0: A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And you know, the, the better an athlete, it's like finding a needle in a haystack. And so you have to create an environment where you see their vulnerability, and you usually have one to two seconds to pick it up.
2: Hmm. And so, uh, one thing that before we we kind of got on, and again, I don't even like to call it tangents; I would rather call it a different word that that highlights the positivity of going in rabbit trails because I never see a problem with it. But um, before we were talking about that, you were you were starting to mention the athlete who they were standing on a BOSU ball or they're they're in a lying position doing a various exercise and you're starting to see a a deficiency, something that's going on. And so could you go into, I know a question I had was like the six key essentials. Would that be like a thing you're looking for, like the six key essentials when they're in a balanced position? If you want to go into that or however you want to take it, but I'm just curious how, what you're looking for specifically in terms of insufficiencies. And then uh, more like the, I guess you could say the exercise based corrections. I know you have chiro- chiropractic and specialty stuff that you could also utilize in your tool belt, but uh, maybe right. just more from a general perspective.
1: So
0: um, I really do look at every athlete and every patient posturally. You know, I look at their gait, I look for, um, you know, neurological things like arm swing. If they're looking down, I look at eye movement, head, head movement. But the thing that I teach is, are people able to be in their feet? What do their feet look like? Um, can you, cause you can see visual problems in the feet. Then you look to see whether or not they're, Abdominals are properly engaged. You know, I'm going, I'm repeating myself whether or not the torso lifts and expands, if they can relax their low back, if their head floats so that there's this nice movement and symmetry in their head moving on their neck. And then, you know, the whether or not the shoulders are just relaxed in response to that. So that's that is the lens through which I teach people to observe where there are dysfunctions. Now, I also, um, and I teach it, you know, as I advance my training, but I'm always looking at movement. I put people through movement verifications. I look at all of their planes of movement and note where there are Obstructions to that movement. And the reason that I like to use that tool is there's immediate feedback. People can tell that, oh, I can't kick my leg out to the side without leaning or um, feeling tightness. So you can really tell a lot about where the dysfunction is based on what's called movement verification. So to sum it up, I use the six essentials, I use movement verification, and I use neurological observation and testing to assess athletes yeah,
2: and patients. So, patient. yeah. so uh, maybe just to dig into, um, I'm sure if we went through the details of all six, that would be like a three-hour show. So maybe um, just explain to me a little bit, um, maybe like the, the feet and the abs, I'd be really interested because I think those are... I mean, we've talked about the, or I've had lots of conversations on the feet in this podcast series. I haven't gotten into the abs as much. Um, one of the things, at least with the linking, potential linking between those two, uh, Chongji has been on the show and talks a lot about foot training and fascial training has talked about like almost the idea of feeling when you're doing foot-based work, like feeling it in the abs. And I think about feeling even like I've done some sprint variations that I could, if I feel things in my abs, especially low abs, it does feel more connected. It feels better. Um, All that to say, I'm just curious what your thoughts are on on looking at someone in their their feet and are their feet doing the correct thing and then uh, in the abdominal region.
0: So one of the things that I love to do, because you brought up the pipes, is when you turn your feet in to do the pipes, you want to make sure that you're pressing the inside of your heels in and your toes are trying to pull the pipes apart. So you're getting this rotation. You're creating tension, a rotational tension that is really terrific for conducting the fascial tension from the feet up. And you can use the abdominals or the torso lift or the head floating to move the pipes Hmm. and the pelvic floor, move them in and out. So when you train that, you know, it's it's pretty easy for people to get where they're connected and where they're not. And that's a type of fascial continuity, but I really try and keep it as simple as possible by just keep relating to all of those essentials. So, but I will try and break. So the feet are an interesting, um, in, in so many ways. I mean, I always, if you look at the number of muscles, then if you look at the, the neurology and the brain, I mean, there's so much real estate in the brain dedicated to our feet, you know, it's almost, almost as much as our hands and, but not as much as our lips and our face and our tongue. So when you've got that much of the brain dedicated to something, you know it's really important now also from a fascial perspective it's one of few places that there's superficial fascia and there's deep fascia and even like the superficial fascia is right underneath your skin so like when you bend your elbow you're stretching the skin on your elbow that tells your brain that you've just brought your hand to your shoulder Okay, so you've got that superficial fascia merging with your deep fascia, which is around, you know, the muscles that attaches to the bones. It actually attaches to every single cell in the body, which is why the fascia explained more about the results that I was getting training than the nervous system, because the nervous system is a. chemical reaction which it was taking much longer than the fascia which Mm. is if one cell changes and it the next one and everything else changes right next to it it's going on simultaneously so it's very quick Mm. so anyway we've got this deep fascia that's connected to everything and just from a perception perspective you are merging the external environment in your internal environment. So, exteroception, the perception of what's going on around you, to interoception, you know, what's going on within us, merges there. So, you can just imagine how smart the feet are, you know, the feedback and why it's critical that we train the feet. So, when And honestly, you can do a squat and notice that the pressure into your, your feet into the ground is influenced by how you use the other essentials. Hmm. So how you use your abs and vice versa. So the goal is like, how well, can you use your abdominals and, and it's hard to separate the right use of the abdominals from the torso lift, the spinal lengthening, because they're interconnected through the pelvic floor via the seven layers, of fascia, of the pelvic floor. So it's hard to separate those two, but you can just lift yourself out of a squat using your abs and your torso with your feet you know, your arches will get higher and work more efficiently or effectively and your toes will work better, you know, as you improve all the other essentials. So, Does that
2: uh, answer
0: your question? It it
2: does. It does. And so, uh, yeah, for people listening to this, I know this isn't video uh, and I'll, before I'll, in the pre-roll, I'll hopefully make a note to myself just to describe at least the PVC pipes. That's just the most easy and accessible for everybody. I, I know a lot of my like online clients will say, go cut some four inch PVC pipes for yourself. It's just so, it's such a simple tool. Uh, the discs are a little more complicated, but, uh, I'm not terribly <laughs> complicated, but so if I'm standing on PVC pipes, uh, four inch pipes or what, or whatnot, um, and I'm squatting down, I, I, in my head, what's running is I, as I'm squatting up and down on these pipes, I can play around with like the length of my spine or, what's happening with my abs and noticing how that's changing the pressure in my feet. And, and that, that would be a simple, like great
0: place yeah. to start. Right. You know, the other thing that you can do is a, um, a lunge where your foot is on a slant board and people can make their own slant boards with a cutting board and a book, but the slant board, when you do it and you know, it's, it's, it's on my website with the arch downhill or on our YouTube arch downhill. So you are augmenting the arch of your foot and then your knee will track right over your second and third toe. And you're so much more solid in a lunge position because you are using your feet the right way.
2: Gotcha. So with that slant board, because that's interesting, I've seen you, um, utilize the slant boards. Uh, we built a bunch of, uh, the gym I work at built a ton of slant boards, uh, and for squatting. And I've recently started using them for just like single leg stuff too. And, yeah. um, and David, David Weck actually sent me like these Weck decks that have like, it's like a slant as well. It's like a, it's got an interesting double slant to it. And I use them for like deadlifting or Romanian straight like deadlifts a lot or hinging. Uh, there's, I've been using that a lot more and I was thinking about, so arch downhill, that means that, um, is, does that mean that the high point is your pinky toe or the high point is yeah. your big toe? High, high point
0: big... is your pinky toe.
2: Ah, got it. Interesting. I've seen a lot of people do lunges the other way and just with the, with the slant the other way. So I was just curious.
0: Yeah. So the slant, the other way doesn't, doesn't create the right amount of tension actually take advantage of the um what's possible from your feet on up i mean it's not bad to to Mm -hmm. train that i'll i train it in all positions but i would say the most potent is the arch downhill yeah even though it's the hardest position it is the position that gets things dialed in accurately because then your knee, the med- your medial knee is supported. And then that, so because the fascia has um, a, like a spiral design, mm-hmm. which in my opinion is like if you had to train a single plane of movement, it would be rotation yeah. because, you know, rotation is what lengthens the spine. It forces the lower abdominals to anchor and optimize all of your abs and your low back. So I could go on and on about that. Um so that's what um that's why I will I will allow people to struggle through the arch downhill a little bit because when they find it it they're just it's Mm. solid. And, you know, you're not going to get that same benefit from just training, doing big toe training, because there are a lot of trainers that focus on the big toe. And that, in my experience, that's an unwise thing to do. Um, So you will, um, but you are getting the big toe, but in relation to all of the arches and its relationship to the knee and the hip and all the way up
2: yeah i've I've definitely shifted towards a more like like let's start with the arches first mentality and like get some spiraling going and And then I find at least I'm curious to ask you this. I have another question first, but like my thought is almost like if you nail the arches, then the toes kind of can start to take care of themselves a little bit. Um but I know toe strength is a big thing for you, and I'm really maybe I'll just ask you it now because I want to ask you more about the arch thing with the slant. Uh, maybe I'll just ask you that now as, as I'm on that trail. So, uh, thoughts on, you know, toe strength, train, the toes, big toes, little toes, like that kind of thing. Uh, and also in light of, um, maybe I said too, cause I don't like people act like gripping the toes down and like, like a rush into the forefoot foot too fast, like type way, if, you know, if that makes sense to you, uh, anyways, I'm just curious with your take on all that.
0: So I think it's important to train. Every joint of every toe I just um, I know that it's a lot of joints that seem insignificant, but i had i mean i'm just going to share a personal experience that that um, I was coming down the steps and i I almost fell and I realized that I had lost the distal joint of my fourth toe. And I'm like, Ooh, I wonder what, Hmm. what happened with that. So I started to, I'm like, okay, why does that joint need some extra support? So, I mean, I definitely do the fascial exploration because I know that that has to do with what's called the lateral plane. But in the meantime, I thought, I'm going to play around with what people can do. And so I found these toe separators that are um, silicone, Mm -hmm. And it was great. And now I'm a big advocate. I encourage people to train that way because it teaches your toes to reach out so that you actually get not only you get more out of your connective tissue. So the fascia goes all the way to your toes. Nothing's insignificant. Like I was horrified when um, I read that, you know, the um, appendix is a vestigial, you know, organ or whatever. And then there, they in the, the article, they were saying um, that the little toe may become a vestigial appendage. And I was horrified. <laughs> that's a critical part of everything on the way up, just because you don't use it, because you we break it a lot because we're not training it. It doesn't know where it is in relation to the rest of the foot, but it can create hip problems. It can go all the way up. So value every joint of every toe, and it's not hard to train it.
2: Yeah, I, I you know? will. I will say with the pinky toe for sure. This is comes from my um, uh, mentorship under Adarian Bars. Uh, just like athletes who can't lift their pinky toe tend to be people who kind of be a lot of times it's almost like they're stuck on the outside of their foot. Like they can't get towards that pronating inside edge with power. And they also don't tend not to have very good formation of the arches. If they can't move that pinky toe at all, if it's always like stuck or it can't like lift at all. And so that's definitely one toe that I've definitely like really worked to mobilize with people and, or like the toe yoga thing where you like lift your big toe independent of your little toes and then lift your little toes independent of your big toe and that kind of thing.
0: Yeah. it's, it's, It's fun to be able to do. But speaking about yoga there are yoga forms that you lift your toes up through the exercise. And I just think that's a bad idea.
2: Hmm. What what can you explain that? I'm curious. Like so like a lunge with your lift your toe up or how what do you uh...
0: No, no, there is a yoga yoga technique where you know you do a lot of postures lifting your toes off the floor. And that I don't think is a good idea. Okay. We need- yeah.
2: Interesting. Oh, I've, try, I've tried, i am trying to put that in light of like, I've, um, yeah, I've been experimenting with, uh, like when the toes are off, it does put you into your mid foot more. Um, but then, you know, eventually they like, you know, the toes come down and create some more stability in the front. And like you said, like, especially not falling, like if you were going to fall over, there's that important element there too. So I'm sure there's a balance, uh, with all that. I, that's interesting with the yoga. Yeah. I just had a show with, um, Katie St. Clair about some toes, some, Uh, like squatting with your, where you don't get to use your toes. Maybe that's different than actively lifting them. I mean, I've done some active lifting movements with them and I find it interesting in lifting the arch, but I do, what's the negative that you think would happen if you do those yoga poses without the toes
0: on the ground? Well, you're, you're reducing your balance. Um, also the nerve, I mean, look when you when you're on the cold surface you lift your toes up because you don't your toes are more sensitive Mm -hmm. to even temperature so they're more sensitive and aware of the surface that you're on so it's super important to use your your toes um from that that perspective and you know i can understand with lifting though i want to go back to that if If you intentionally lift your toe, you're going to create more tension on the front that momentarily could help the eccentric as you go down. So I can understand why from a training perspective that could be useful.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I've always tried to, I mean, I'm always trying to take where I'm at and look at it from all angles. And I will say to athletes who have a hard time with the eccentric loading, and have a hard time lifting their toes where everything's like just flat, you know, a lot of times they'll feel that the most in the toe extensors, like it's, that's what's the hardest. And I'm like, well, if we do this all the time, like constantly, you're probably going to strain your toe extensors, you know, like on some level or you could, I mean, again, I, I do find use in toes up stuff, but I also see how I also see the potential, like what you're, I do see what you're saying with that. Like, especially if you're like trying to avoid like falling over or, or positions where you would need your toes. Um, I hope that makes sense. I'm just trying to yeah, balance it all. Cause I, I do, I hadn't heard about that in yoga. I do utilize the no toes on occasion. Um, but also, so you would say the biggest is like in context of like, when you need them, if you train yourself not to use them, then that could be a problem.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just, just try to. Yeah. Um, so with, uh, the slant board intrigues me, I want to get back to that. Um, because I've, as I said, I've seen a lot of people slant it towards the pinky toe side, and I, I intuitively though, I've done it both, and I feel the way the other way where it's like the 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 big arch of the foot is downhill. I feel way more tension running through the foot as a whole. There's way more fascial tensegrity when you do it that way. Um, I've also seen athletes who are a little like overpronated actually not be able to handle that very well just because they they don't have the tension like what could you explain like progressing that and go into that a little more I just sure, think that's really interesting
0: sure. um so you know I came up with all the four positions on the slant board now when the toes are downhill I love that because you get to feel every joint of every toe it automatically creates space generally I mean some people have restrictions and you have to get down and move move the toes apart but it the kneecap automatically tracks over the second and third toe. So you've got this nice alignment that prepares the fascia and the brain and nervous system for, you know, sort of maximal balance and whatever strength is needed at the time. So then the, I always thought for the longest time, I thought, you know, you need to train the arch uphill. And then I, I, I found that I, I, the arch uphill is, in my opinion, probably the least needed of the four slant board positions. Mm-hmm. So, if I only do two positions, I'll do toes downhill and arch downhill. Um, I like toes uphill. You never want to bend your knees, and that's a good exercise to teach people to lengthen their toes when the backside is extended so it kind of continues that tension all the way down the backside to the toes did i answer your question
2: yeah yeah um actually i'd like to get get into that a little bit more cuz i i love the simple things like a simple slant board so many people have it in the gym and you could just turn it four ways and experience yes. training and i i like to do yeah single like single leg like toe touches and rdls or like throw the ball a uh, med ball back and forth and uh, so so your favorites are yeah arch downhill and then why do you like um toes downhill like like a plantar flex position what's the benefit of that for somebody
0: Because the the weight distribution allows you to get all the way into the ends of your toes mm. and a the kneecap in a slight knee bend or knee bend will always track um if in rare cases you know, the knee goes in or out. Then I know. Then I explore why is that happening. And usually, it's a knee problem that there's been some history of injury or surgery to the knee. But um, it's it's the best way for people to feel their feet and dial in. The arch will be high, you know, as high as it can be. So, yeah, you know what? I know how we got onto this was you ask about um, people that. Pronate so much. Now it's very interesting because there are some people that look like they're pronating more than they are just because of the kind of a unique design to their feet, that there's more thickness in the arch area. So I really look at function, like in the arch downhill, does their knee track? What are they doing with their toes? But you can progress it from a very minor angle all the way up to a higher angle. So it, it can be progressed. So on somebody with, you know, pronation problems, I would start toes downhill and then do arch downhill. And I would get them into a lunge on, you know, with their back leg on the ball as quickly as possible.
2: Got it. Okay. Yeah. And that makes sense with some other podcasts I've done where um, people have talked about doing like a split squat uh, with the front foot, um, with the heel elevated in the front foot, because that helps. Um, I think it naturally gives the person a little more external rotation in the front tibia, it helps them to yeah, track and utilize elastic energy better um, than a lot of times if they're flat footed. So that kind of fits with just the ability to track in that situation, does fit with things I've heard from other people as well. Just a, a little bit different schools of thought. But so that would be the first place if someone's like, I guess, over pronated. And then you could start working in that the arch downhill type slant situation.
0: So the other thing that I would look at with somebody with a pronation problem is what's going on with their pelvic floor. Mm. Um, One of the things that I train um, is is the pelvic floor. And wow, uh, you're not going to get the feet working optimally if you've got pelvic floor issues.
2: Yeah, because that like pulls the fascia, that tugs the fascia upward, that leads to the middle arches. Then, right?
0: Right, right.
2: Gotcha. So that's it.
0: But they train it. It's it's trained incorrectly. So one of the things that you mentioned earlier was, you know, talking about expansion, and you know, I always you you know remind people like there's no point in um, expansion or flexibility if you don't have the rebound
1: Hmm.
0: okay so you always like you do you use the expansion to make sure that you get the rebound you've got to augment that so you the pelvic floor has to be trained for its you know to maximize on the lengthening and the rebounding and its connection to the spinal lengthening and and the abdominals and you can just Feel it; the arches just improve significantly with elasticity, with the mechanics. It's all good.
2: Yeah. What would so? What would some not effective approaches to the pelvic floor be versus a better way of thought
1: of
0: working on that? Um, Kegels. Um, They're really kegels are really designed more for a man's pelvic floor. A man's pelvic floor is can. Is designed more for contraction, but you want to take advantage of the eccentric loading and rebound to get the most out of the contraction effortlessly and prevent injury, especially like soccer players. I mean, I worked with two professional soccer players that both had pelvic floor surgery to rebuild their pelvic floor. So it becomes very, very important there. So Um, So I would say, you know, if you're doing heavy weightlifting and you're not doing anything specific for your pelvic floor understanding and training the relationship of the pelvic floor to the hips, to the abs, to the spine, you're you're missing out on significant amounts of power, responsiveness, you know, ability to change direction. injury prevention and injury correction and just power in general
2: hmm. yeah it's it it does make me think about other shows i've done where the um like the expansion of the pelvic floor is linked to like the ability to let like flatten out and pronate the feet a little bit and then everything rebounding back up or uh, i'm sure it's it's a nuance we could really like get in the weeds into but it like the relationship of those two the feet and the pelvic floor i i've Uh, It's good to hear it again, again, in a little bit different context, but I think not enough people, we tend to live in so much isolation. People say, oh, it's just the feet (laughs) and we don't go upstream into the rest of the body.
0: Yeah, that's for sure. I'm glad you point that out because, you know, it, it would be, it's even hard. Some of the questions like, you know, the importance of the feet without talking about the interconnectedness. Thanks for making that point.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's where, so the last question, maybe, uh, slightly, you already, you already touched on it a lot, uh, but I've heard you mention this with like a physio ball, uh, in that you, I, I think it was another podcast with you. I was listening to is you had said the first time you got on a physio ball, you felt like the, the fascial, you felt it like linking up with your fascial system, which I think a lot of people, maybe you're more like a more sensitive person to that kind of stuff than the, especially I think the average, like strength coach is used to like barbells and less sensitive type equipment but could you explain how like we can feel fascial like you you mentioned like feeling like maybe we could feel our abs and the length of our spine and how this fits with the feet but how do we tune into feeling our fascial system working so often it's just easy to say we're doing fascial training we're doing elastic training we're doing bouncy you know like how do you actually feel or or what's your take on what is fascial training if that makes sense
0: So in my opinion well because <clears throat> um I I study and I practice fascia so not only in movement but because I treat people I have the advantage of feeling what training does to the tissues so most you know trainers they don't touch they they haven't um, developed their hands to be able to assess what what's going on with tissues in the body. So the fascia has a particular feel to it. It should glide and that allows nerves um, to blood vessels. It allows um, muscles to glide over one another. So all of it's that gliding is number one. And, um, So hyaluronic acid is the substance that is very glidy, that allows the gliding to take place. Now, when you have injury or overuse, that hyaluronic acid starts to get sticky. It gets dehydrated. It gets sticky. So things start sticking together. You lose the gliding and it will feel dense. So when, and as a practitioner, what they know about the fascia is that you have to heat it, it responds, the hyaluronic acid responds to friction, Um, not just poking in, you have to create friction to um, increase the heat, which is why I use laser to assist that process and um, shockwave in in treatment. Um, So What the fascia will feel like to the participant when the fascia is obstructed or densified is it'll kind of feel it'll feel like you're wearing a sleeve that's a little too short when you reach your arm out or you will hear or feel clunking. So what we want is when we're doing exercises to feel like the shoulder blades are gliding on the rib cage to notice that, you know, you've got this nice um, precision of movement in your in all of your joints and there shouldn't be areas of pain or discomfort um the fascia is by many now considered the organ of sensation because we have more proprioceptors that tell us where we are in space more mechanoreceptors more pain receptors and um free nerve endings in the fascia than any other tissue so we get a lot of feedback so if we have some unrest or we don't like a particular movement, it could be because the fascia is not healthy in an area that we're moving. So the more freedom that we have the in our fascia, the, the healthier the fascia is, the more we will be comfortable in the body that we're in. So that's kind of, I guess that's kind of a long way of explaining that internally, we will be more at rest within our body and performing a particular activity.
2: I've heard, that's uh, really cool that you are a practitioner who can get your hands on the tissue and you feel w- the results of the training the athlete is doing. I heard, the first time I heard that idea, it was um, a coach, Jim Snyder. This was eight, nine years ago. I think he's at Wisconsin right now. He is a massage therapist and was talking about how when he had programmed like long hold, like longer isometric holds for athletes, that that did something positive to like the alignment of the fascia. And he could feel that. Um, I'm curious what you feel uh, like training. Where like athletes have done a particular type of training, maybe it's heavy weightlifting or something. Like, how do you uh, like what seems to be positive, really positive, and positively impactful on the fascial and how you're feeling it uh, and from a training standpoint? So, what things seem to really help it? Uh, what's, and what things seem to really take away from it. And then also I'll throw in there, like, what do you think about like uh, lacrosse balls, right? Like rolling the foot with a lacrosse ball or some of the manual tools athletes self use in terms of what you feel in the fascia there.
0: Okay. So the fascia and they know this because, so I study with a, um, steco fascial manipulation, which is the gold standard universally, um, Carlos Stecco has dissected more unpreserved cadavers than anyone in the world. And so it's a different picture. You, the body is completely different when it's unpreserved. It's the only way that you can actually see the fascia. And the studies have, and it's very cool because they also, in the last like six years, they have developed high resolution ultrasound so you can actually see the fascia, so you can see what the fascia likes and what it responds mm. to. It doesn't like held positions. You, hmm. Holding a posture more than 10, 15 seconds straightens out the collagen fibers, and you lose that waviness, which adds to elasticity of the fascia.
1: Hmm.
0: Um, so don't hold positions. Um, you want loading that's, um, you know, continuous, and changing it responds really well this is my experience to eccentric loading um like isokinetic i you know i developed a pool workout in 1998 that is amazing for the fascia and um so i so what i see is any sort of repetitive sport is going to create those densifications and uh training that does not use all planes of movement like runners really have problems because they don't do any lateral or rotational training so you have to be careful of that um so let me just think what else when it comes to the I think those are like the key elements, but because, oh, I know. The other thing is that you asked about the, the texture. Now I use texture. I don't use the PVC pipes anymore. I use pipes that have um, ridges, you know, on them and there's a particular kind of foam that, that they have on them. It's actually a circular ridge, which I like. Um, I also, on my slant board, I put a very um, specific type of rubber that wakes the feet up. So it's because of the um, sensory cells that are in the superficial fascia that that's conducted into the deep fascia. So the superficial fascia has connectors that go with fat, bat- between the two layers that go to the deep fascia. So you can make significant changes in the deep fascia just by what happens in the skin, the superficial fascia. So that's why the tone of the exercise ball, the type, like I get Mm. my balls from Italy. I'm really particular about all of the equipment that I use to optimize on on the fascia. And I don't like most fascial tools. And I think people should not treat their fascia without knowing that fascia is segmental. Um, Not, I'm sorry, it's sequential. It's not segmental. So there are, there are fascial techniques that just focus on say the hip and that's not, you've got to Look at the fascia in the feet if you're going to treat the hip. Look at the fascia high up on either side of it. So that was why I was attracted to the fascial manipulation because I had studied other fascial techniques, but I looked in their textbook and I saw that they had this fascial sequence and I'm like, oh my gosh, here's a technique that sees the body the way I see movement. And so then I started studying with them and it's just been magical because it, the uh, i mean how well connected they, they they're seamless in how they work together the treatment and the the exercise so those some of those tools are way too aggressive the fascia you're going to create densifications in the superficial fascia generally so i'm making a general statement it's very individual but my recommendation is that you know you know get online, look at the sequences that the stecco have laid out, and if you find areas of a problem, look above and below that area if you're going to treat yourself and never treat fewer than three points in a sequence
2: got it um, so in terms of take home points from that it's interesting because I'm trying to I'm trying to reconcile at least you know I, I was like oh well, with these isometrics, like Jim Snyder was talking to, or with Jim Snyder, or even like, I've heard a lot of like NBA strength coaches, they'll use like 30 second isometric holds for the tendons. Like they'll talk about for tendon, like analgesia and stuff like that. And like a positive effect there. Um, but maybe I'll just say this is I do know, like, uh, I talk about a strength coach, Jay Schrader's methods on this podcast a lot, and they'll do like long isometric holds, but they're actually extreme slows. Cause he emphasizes that you're actually pulling into it slowly over time. So maybe that also being more positive for the fascia than just holding rigidly. Like I do, it doesn't make sense. If you're rigid, like if you're completely rigid, you're dead. So like, there is like that, that element versus like a slow, subtle, like you're pulling or there's an intentional pulling. Um, maybe that's like, I'm just trying to kind of see where I, I, I fitting that in that paradigm. But I, uh, the the texture seems like that's the easiest thing then. Like if there's just, just, being aware of the texture, whatever you're on, being at a physio ball, the ground, your feet, like, like I love running in the woods with minimalist shoes. So I feel the ground, like yeah, I, I know we don't really pay much attention at all to the textures in the gym. Usually it's just a cold metal bar, which in some ways is cool, but it doesn't give us, you know, much beyond that. So, um, any other thoughts on texture and, and how we can interact with it or even like a slant board, right? Like a flat slant board, any other thoughts on texture in the gym and interacting?
0: I think um it, I think that I would phrase it like I want people to think about even the shoes that they wear the inside of shoes some shoes are very rough and they create problems all the way up from the texture of the shoes and so just our day-to-day textures I mean I, they know you know, children that have some sensory overload, they're very particular about the kind of clothing that, they'll, that they wear. Um, we actually will, by having an awareness, like the shape, the right um, amount of pressure in the ball, so how hard it is, will, you know, either make you comfortable on the ball or repel you from the ball. So I would say be very particular about the ball having the same tone that you would want in your tissues, which would mean that there's elasticity and give, not not tension that feels unpleasant. So we basically, um, we want to get the, whatever it takes to get the most out of our performance and that performance doesn't have to be sports performance, but, you know, ease and comfort in our body to better accomplish whatever we want to do. Um, what what do you feel like being on top of the ball? What do these things feel like when they're in your hands? And, you know, just put your, it, you know, you want to like touching what you're on or what you have in your hands is, is the place that I go to because it's more inviting to use it.
1: Yeah.
2: I, I definitely see it with the, with the ball. I, it's funny. Cause until you just mentioned it, there's nothing that I almost dislike more than a really kind of deflated exercise ball <laughs> to do. It's just cause it, it's so like, yeah, it's like deflating. It's like, it doesn't feel reactive. It feels slow. You kind of sink into it. Like you're sinking in the sand and yeah, I, I almost like with, for me to help me understand, I almost look at that as the core. Like, how do you feel on? how that should be inflated to where you're feeling bouncing, and reactive. And then everything else you work with kind of should have some level of that. Uh, it's, I think, yeah, it's again, things we don't think about, but I, yeah, I've always hated deflated exercise balls. They drive me nuts. So it's good to hear that. I yeah. can't
0: even, I can't even look at deflated somebody on a deflated ball. I just have to look away. I can't unsee it because it has a visceral response.
2: That's funny. That's funny. I think that's a great place to start, though, for so many people, because that's something we're all so very familiar with, you know, and like just feeling that, feeling the way the body reacts and the vibration that comes off of it. I I think that's really, really, a really interesting concept and something that is almost like a, yeah, it's an easy anchor to, to understand the concept. Um, well, hey, uh, Dr. Edith, I know. We had a lot of questions and we only got through a few, but that's totally okay. Cause any of these could have been a massive show, especially like fully getting into like the different six elements of traits of performance and all the, the body is so complex. There's a lot to talk about, but uh, for what we chatted about, I, I learned a lot and I really enjoyed speaking with you today. I mean, we just talked an hour and a half on probably about four questions. So I, I thank you for your time. I really appreciate it today.
0: Oh, my pleasure, Joel. I love talking to you. Um, I love that you are like really an organic mover that I can speak, you know, with you on some of these, you know, sensing kinds of things that are critical to making us all more comfortable in our bodies, better athletes and just better human beings. So thank you for the opportunity.
2: Yeah. Thank you again. I really appreciate talking to you and I'm excited to get to work and and next time I'm training and really feeling out these concepts. So I really appreciate the way you brought it forth. Thanks for tuning into another show. We really appreciate you listening to this series and whether it's your first episode or your 250th, I'm really happy to have you. Have a great rest of your week and we'll see you on the next show.